Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you all may wash, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as, your, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seers of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice, tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will, soon, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in these years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circum circumcised him as, the God, as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Sounds great. Good evening, everyone. I am delighted to be here on this Mother's Day, so happy, happy Mother's Day, everyone, uh, particularly mothers, obviously. Um, and uh, I'm going to talk today on this passage about what it means to be a mother, or rather what the heart of motherhood is and what the thing is we're trying to, to celebrate on this day. is. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into these two passages and see what the Bible has to tell us about motherhood. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you open it to our hearts today and open our hearts to it. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. A small boy is sent to bed by his mother. Five minutes later, she hears a cry from his room. Mom! What? I'm thirsty. Can you bring me a glass of water? 
Say, no, you had your chance. It's lights out. Five minutes later. Mom, what? I'm thirsty. Can I have a glass of water? I said no. If you ask again, I'll come in there and smack you. Five minutes later. Mom, what? When you come in to smack me, can you bring a glass of water? <laughs> I have mixed feelings about the Mother's Day kind of celebration atmosphere. I like the idea of honoring mothers for what they do, and no one knows better than I do what the blessing of a good mother is. But you have to do a little bit of digging each year, like we often need to do around kind of corporatized holidays to figure out what it is we're trying to celebrate. Because a lot of the stuff around Mother's Day, the, and the products aimed at mothers in general, the ads, the billboards, the jokes, the cards, they really aren't that good at celebrating mothers. Well-meaning as they might be, most of the punchlines for the jokes, like that one, um, for Mother's Day, or cheeky little Mother's Day cards, they tend to be one of two kinds. The punchline of one is, isn't it funny how husbands are dumb? And the other is, isn't it funny how children are unappreciative? And you know, that you, like that stereotype mum that turns up in all the ads, the one who's perfected the, oh, you helpful idiots, smile that she gives to the children or the husband when they try to do something without her. You get an ad for laundry liquid, and it'll be a, a sheepish-looking husband who for some reason can't figure out the immortal mysteries of the washing machine. He'll try using an inferior product, and before you know it, there's bubbles everywhere, and he's slipping over in the laundry, and the mother of the family will be there. Oh, Dad, you helpless idiot. And she'll show him how to use new ultra-soft Omnisan with its dual-stain unlocking powers. Are you familiar with this broadcast stereotype? Or, or maybe it'll be an ad for Band-Aids, and you'll have a, a sequence of children, usually boys, running into things and doing dumb things. Oh, you boys, you helpless idiots. Let Mum fix you up. Now, these stereotypes are not totally groundless. I still take my ironing to my mum's house for some things. But that's different. She likes ironing. <laughs> and she's better at it than me. But I'm reasonably capable of looking after myself at this point in my life. But the point I'm getting to is, is this. There's this popularized image of what a mother is. And some of it, a lot of that image is just kind of this pleasant fluff. You know, it's mothers are nice, they're kind, they make us feel good when we are sad. All right, that's good. It's just not a very substantial sort of appraisal of what mothers are. Lots of people are nice and kind and make us feel good when we are sad. Elmo is nice and kind and makes us feel good when we are sad. So some of it is this pleasant fluff. And Elmo is pleasant fluff. But some of, it <laughs> some of it is just this idea that kids and husbands are helpless um, entirely. They're helpless idiots who can't walk down a hallway without tripping over or can't do the ironing without setting the house on fire. And these are funny ideas, and it's, it's fun to throw them around, but we don't really mean them. If everyone around a given one was really that shockingly bad at life, she would have a meltdown from which she would never recover. So it's this exaggeration that kind of boils down to she's helpful around the house. And if you scrub at this public commercialized image of the mother and you scrub it down to its basic components, it really adds up to she's nice and she's helpful around the house. And I want to suggest to you that if the best thing that you can say about your mum is that she's nice, and helpful around the house, you are not trying hard enough. I want to suggest that motherhood is more complex than that. and It's never been more complex than it is today, because 
Today, motherhood is different to how it was in ancient times or even 50, even 25 years ago, the world is so different now to what it used to be. And I want to ask in the most genuinely thoughtful and biblical way, what's so great about mothers anyway? Because when you ask that question seriously, it comes with extra questions that are not very pleasant or fluffy. Like what makes mothers so special? What does it mean for a child who grows up without a good relationship with their mother or with no mother? Is motherhood the best thing a woman can do? And what does it mean for women who don't or can't have children? Is she less of a woman for that? And if it's so important, how much pressure must there be on mums to be good mums? And how bad can it be if they mess it up? This may be the most depressing Mother's Day sermon you ever heard, but we're going to explore some of these things and try to figure out what really is at the heart of motherhood as God designed it. And these passages we read from are from Genesis, and I, I like these ones particularly. Because most, most passages in the Bible, when they talk about motherhood, tends to be paired off with fatherhood. Honor your mother and your father. Listen to your father's words. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. These are good, but they're not going to tell us anything unique about motherhood. And you have Mary's story, obviously, in the New Testament, but Mary's story is a little unusual in that her child is the son of God. There's, the, of course, the Proverbs 31 woman, who is a mother, among other things. Chapter 31 in the book of Proverbs, you might know, describes this ideal woman, and she's industrious, and she's wise, and she takes care of the household, and her husband and children love her to bits, and they brag about her. And that's an encouraging vision in the abstract, but right now we're looking for the heart of motherhood, not the ideal woman. And even though I know that most ladies really enjoy being publicly compared to perfect women, we'll leave Proverbs 31 alone for now. But in these early chapters in Genesis, we get a glimpse into an ancient world, one that we're not necessarily particularly familiar with. We're talking 4,000 years ago, a completely different series of circumstances where there's so much land and so few people, it's possible just to strike out into the open world and stake a claim and start your own tribe. And God calls Abraham to do just this. He calls Abraham and Sarah to start their own tribe. He calls a new people out of an ancient kingdom, and we get a handful of stories at the start of Genesis that give us an insight into the heart of the mother. And the Jewish people really begin here with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis. Abraham is called by God to establish this new nation, and he sets out at the sprightly young age of 75, and Sarah at 65. And they set out at 75 and 65 with the promises of God that they would be together so fruitful that they would start a nation of their own. Now, there's a bit of an interesting aging scheme that happens here. These ancient people did not age quite the same way that we did. Abraham lives eventually to the ripe old age of 175 and Sarah to 127. And as best we can tell, that looks like they had a kind of a longer youth and middle of life. We know that they're not hobbling out of Babylon as senior citizens because Abraham gets swept up in a couple of wars in which he personally excels. And in their early adventures, Sarah is so beautiful, so compelling and breathtaking that Abraham is afraid that people will kill him just to get her back on the market. So he tells people compulsively that she's his sister, not his wife. 
And he does this when she is 65 years of age. 65 years old and so desirable that people would kill her husband to have her. That lady is doing her charcoal face packs and Pilates. <laughs> and then the same thing happens again when she is 90. That's amazing. But the point is, despite the fact that these guys appear to have an extended period of youth and middle age, it doesn't seem like there was an extended window for motherhood. We're told in this passage that she was past childbearing years. They receive these three divine visitors, a visitation from God, and God tells them they're going to have a son through whom these promises will be fulfilled to have this new nation. And Sarah hears this and laughs. Here's that verse again, and it is a little funny. Verse 10 from chapter 18. So now, now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, she thought. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? She's 90 years old. She's physically compelling enough to elicit homicidal jealousy from other tribal chiefs, but as far as her fertility is concerned, she is no young woman. And the idea that she will have kids now is so foolish to her that it is laughable. She's the first person in ancient literature to laugh. The first recording we have of anyone laughing written down. And it's this bitter, cynical laugh because she's calling herself worn out. A beautiful, capable woman who considers herself worn out because she can't have children. And later, Sarah does fall pregnant. We get the second laugh in recorded history. Verse 6 in chapter 21. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And so they called their child Isaac, whose name means he laughs. That's an extraordinarily beautiful passage of Scripture because God promised he would give them descendants 25 years before he did so. And if we assume that the, the text um, is telling us, as, as it tells us, um, that her childbearing days were traditionally over at the point that they heard this promise, and well and truly before that probably, they, they'd gone on a long time together with no children and most of those years with, with no reason to believe that they would have any. 60 or 70 years together with no children. And in a time and a place where no children meant that there would be no one to care for you when you were so old that you needed help. That your legacy was going to vanish into the hands of a servant if you were lucky, or bandits if you weren't. This is a culture in which fertility and virility were the highest possible good because they secured a future for your family line. And that was, for all intents and purposes, how they thought they were going to live forever, how they thought they would beat death with a family that lasted. Later in the Bible, God reveals more about the resurrection after life. But in the ancient world, Abraham had no expectation that his life would have any lasting impact on the universe except as a father. And Sarah had no expectation that her life would have any lasting impact on the universe except as a mother. And they had married. And they must have tried and waited 
and watched the childbearing portion of Sarah's life trickle away fruitlessly until she feels old and worn out. And then they are called into a foreign land by God, and he says he'll bless them, that he'll bless their descendants, that he will do a great work through them, that he will bless the world through their children, that he's performing the opening moves in the greatest feat that will ever be accomplished in the history of the world. God blesses them, they get caught in battles, but Abraham always wins and establishes honor for them. He accrues wealth, he hires servants, he has allies, he is a respected and feared man, respected and feared as God's chosen man. And everything is going well, except that one day Abraham will die, and Sarah will have given him no children to inherit this blessing. And she feels broken and old and worn out, and she's got to be terrified that this will be the reason that all of it's going to fall apart. And sometimes we can be fairly dismissive of the characters in the old stories because they're so far away from us. We know that Sarah's failure to have children was weighing on her so heavily that she resorted to bringing in another woman to try and solve the problem for her. You may know that story. Sarah brings Hagar, her servant, her slave, and gives her to Abraham as a, a concubine, a kind of secondary wife. Abraham goes along with this plan. He sleeps with Hagar. What do you know? Hagar falls pregnant immediately. Now we can read this and think that Abraham was stupid for agreeing to this, or that Sarah was stupid for not believing God's promises he'd earlier given. But I don't know. There's a lot of emotion tied up in this circumstance, and we may be uncharitable to think that of them. Sarah feels like the weight of destiny of at least her husband's legacy, and at most the plan of her God, depends on her ability to provide children. Can you blame her for doubting herself that she does something so unusual? And Abraham, he's not just some old lech who's happy to have a new woman in his bed. He's been with Sarah for 50, 60 years, and hasn't gathered up any concubines or new wives of his own, even though he probably could have. He just maybe sees that this burden is killing Sarah slowly, and between her insistence and his rationalization, convinces himself that this is a good idea. But this decision unfolds in a famous disaster. Let me read to you from chapter 16. At this stage, they're still called Abram and Sarai. They'll later be called Abraham and Sarah. Chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Maternity is so close to the hearts of these women that it brings out the worst in both of them. 
for Sarah, first it's this desperation that leads her to doubt God's plan and thrust another woman into the arms of her husband. And that's a pitiful hope. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, this is not a commentary on surrogacy or anything like it. This is about these women who measure their worth by their fertility and about their cruelty to each other. Because after that desperate hope, Hagar falls pregnant according to plan. But now it's not Sarah, the famously beautiful, exotic, wealthy mistress, having the child to whom all this wealth and promise of God will be passed. It's Hagar, the Egyptian slave, who spent all this time braiding her mistress's hair and keeping the home in order and feeling inferior. But aha, now who's number one wife? Let's see who will have the children to fetch them a blanket in their final days and who will be buried by strangers. It's possible that only the women in this room and maybe some of the more observant men have any idea the kind of vicious powder keg of envy and passive aggression and outright aggression that this scenario could possibly create. And Sarah is lashing out in all directions now. She tells Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. Abraham is desperate to make her feel some kind of relief. He says, she's your slave, do what you want. And Sarah mistreats Hagar. Does she hit her, starve her, overly criticize everything she does and pick on her? We don't know. But whatever it is, it's bad enough that Hagar flees from their tribe. A pregnant slave woman alone in the barbarian wilderness. That's about as desperately vulnerable as you can get. God meets with her in the wilderness. He promises her that he will watch over her and her son, and she returns to the camp. We don't know if Sarah's abuse of Hagar lessened off over time or maintained or how severe it was. But for better or worse, Sarah resigns the legacy of her family to her husband's child through another woman, a woman who hates her and whom she hates. Thirteen years later, Sarah laughs bitterly when God promises an impossible child that will be the one through whom God raises a nation. Fourteen years after Hagar fled and returned, Sarah will laugh with delirious joy as she holds this impossible child in her arms and names him laughter. So Sarah's child brings her the relief she was desperately searching for. But what about Hagar and her son Ishmael? The rest of the chapter offers that bittersweet story from verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. You can feel her tension and the, the poison of bitterness left in her veins from all these years. Before it was, maybe I can build a family through this woman. Now it's, that woman's son will never share in the inheritance of my son, Isaac. Verse 11. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to what Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them 
to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. And this is among one of the most, among the most heartbreaking scenes in all of Scripture. Her son is a young man now, 15 or 16. They, they set out through the desert because they can't live with the tribe anymore. They have nowhere to go. They run out of water and Ishmael becomes faint. He can't go on. His father has cast him and his mother out of the only home that he has ever known. He doesn't know what he's done to deserve this. He's sure he and his mother are going to die here. He collapses. His mother helps him under a bush to give him a little bit of shade. But she can't stand there and watch him die. So she goes far enough away that she can't hear him sobbing too and that he can't hear her breaking down and sobbing too. This is her child. This is the thing she measured herself by, the one who was going to fetch her blanket in her old age and bury her with honor when she died. And right now it looks like she will have to bury him. And if she has the strength, she'll do that before she dies. Then we get to verse 17. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got him a wife from Egypt. So Ishmael grows into a great nation. Isaac, his brother, grows into a great nation. As well, both mothers through great suffering, have their ambitions vindicated through God. But not before the journey of motherhood embitters them and frees them and terrifies them and delights them. And if that's what motherhood entails, I'm not entirely sure I'd wish it upon my worst enemy, let alone someone I love as much as my mom. If you're a mother, you probably have a good idea what this experience is like. If you're not and you're brave, Try asking one. It's not a nice and fluffy thing. Ask them what it's like to be the first in their group of friends to have a child while everyone else is trying for one, or the last in their group of friends to be trying while everyone else seems to have them. To be on a fertility program at $10,000 and attempt while other women can't help but seem to have children by accident, let alone those who terminate their pregnancies because the timing is not right. And that's just the effort of having children. What's it like to feel guilty for secretly wanting a girl but having a boy and then worrying if that makes you a bad mother for the next 10 years? How about to have a 13-year-old say, I hate you, and then slam the door in your face? And knowing they don't really mean it, but feeling like you're being eaten alive by the comment anyway. What does it feel like before having kids to internally judge a mother at the supermarket who can't control her brood? and then later to be the one judged by onlookers as your brood is going berserk in the cereal aisle. Or to wrestle with yourself looking at an empty room where your 20-year-old used to 
sleep and spend their time before they left the nest, and simultaneously wanting them very much to succeed and therefore vindicate all your love and effort, and also just a little bit, that they might fail, just temporarily, so that they could come home again, and it wouldn't be so damn quiet here all the time. What do we do with this? What do we have in these ancient stories of motherhood that persist through to today's experiences? What is it that we are really celebrating when we celebrate Mother's Day? It's love, and, and a particular kind of love at that. It's not even having a child that is at the heart of motherhood, strange as that sounds. It's a radical species of love that can so completely impact and shape a woman's desires and hopes around a person that she cares for. So let me pose a painful question. If a woman who has no children, rather, suppose a woman has no children for whatever reason, is she less of a woman for not having them? Because there are many women who try very hard to have children and don't succeed, or even try to get married and don't succeed. Is motherhood the crowning achievement of a woman? Are childless women then failed women? Abraham did not think so. Sarah was 65 years old when they got the call from God, and he hadn't taken any additional wives or done anything shady to have the children they both must have desperately wanted. Her virtue as a woman comes out in her story in many ways, some of them misguided. But she loves her man so much that she's willing to try and build her family out of another woman just so that she can help his line continue. She so wildly loves Abraham that she becomes cruel to Hagar once she is afraid of being usurped as a true wife. And she so intensely loves young Isaac that she sends Hagar and Ishmael out of the tribe to die as far as she cares because she will not compromise the future of her son for anyone else's. Some of these decisions are not godly decisions. But try asking a woman, if you're brave, mother or not, if she's ever been so inflamed by love for someone that she's lashed out and done something maybe a little hurtful or mean. Motherhood is an expression of this wild species of love that exists in the heart of a woman. And that love most naturally flows out when she has her own children to pour it into. But if not, she'll find someone else to pour it into. Her parents, her siblings, her husband, pets if she has to. She is driven by a nuclear furnace in her soul, and there is a great deal of power there. So you must forgive her the occasional meltdown or minor explosion. Love on that magnitude is not easily contained or channeled. There will be some casualties. Yet it's that love that will illuminate and warm and motivate the world around them. A child who grows up without a mother depends on other women in his or her life pouring into them. Or their world, for all the heroic efforts of the men in their life, will not be the same. They'll grow up with a sun half as bright, with light half as warm and a terrible obstacle in their life when it comes to learning critical lessons about suffering or self-sacrifice or love. This kind of love is the love of God as he chooses to reveal it in the heart of a woman. It's astonishing and deep and powerful and it will blow her to pieces 
if you don't occasionally wrap your arms around her to hold it in. That, I think, is what we are really celebrating today. The love of God as revealed in the hearts of women who pour themselves out into our lives. So if there's someone that you haven't thanked today that you should, and someone you haven't thanked God for today that you should, don't forget. And don't forget after the service to thank them for what they do. And if you want better to understand the heart of a God who would take the sins of the world on himself, who would suffer and die in the person of Jesus, who would endure our constant stumbling and failure to appreciate him just so that he could draw us back into his loving kingdom, consider looking to the woman in your life who would iron all the pants in the world just for you to spend a little more time with her. Let's pray together. Father God, you reveal yourself to us as Holy Spirit and Son and Father. But we know you're the author of love. And we know too that there is no richer love on this earth than that which you've put in the hearts of mothers and grandmothers and wives and sisters and those women you array around each of us who will so quickly pour out their kindness and affection for our benefit. May our women find your own love as the wellspring to fill them up again and as the means to lead them as they go on with the blessing and burden that it is to love so deeply. May our young women find in their mothers and older women around them the examples they need to inherit that legacy of self-sacrifice and to guard that instinct, or guard against that instinct, Lord, to turn to jealousy or bitterness which is a necessary danger of that kind of love. And may our men, as we seek to be the creatures you've made us to be, discovering what it means to be men, may we never fail to appreciate what the women in our lives have given to us, what they need from us, and how together we more completely show to the world the image of the God who so loves it. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.